Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Hello from Jerusalem. This is Powers in Play, our monthly program having to do with international politics, diplomacy, warfare, and everything in between. And this uh, time, of course, over everything we talk about uh, is the Russia-Ukraine war. And our question will be, does war have a future now with the general condemnation of what Vladimir Putin has been doing since late February. Is there a just war? Are there means which can justify war? And our panel uh, today has uh, two newcomers, uh, General Gershon Akoyan, Major General Reserve, formerly a core commander in the Israeli Defense Forces and the head of the National Defense College. Welcome. Great. Thank you. And Eran uh, Etzion, um, a former diplomat and among other duties, the uh, deputy head of the National Security Council, now National Security Staff. Eran, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And as usual, uh, retired ambassador and former deputy foreign minister, Danny Ayalon. Welcome. And Reserve Colonel Ruven Ben Shalom. Welcome to Gershon McCoyne, uh, you um, have made your career in the profession of arms. But uh, if one uh, were to believe at least the Western attitudes, um, which uh, were pronounced ever since um, Putin ordered his uh, troops to invade Ukraine, this could be the last war on earth, could it? Uh, it will be not be the last, not because uh, we are expecting uh, the human being to engage wars all time, but we are not, at least me, not believing in the possibility of human being to really bring the promise of paradise in our own reality. But I'm not only interested in the huge question whether war at all still possible or not. I'm really interested also in the question of how we are building forces. And what the Russians exemplified is that they are building forces in the same way that we are building cities. It means the old uh, neighborhoods are part of the new neighborhoods and they are interwoven between themselves uh, level upon level and uh, acting together in the Western military organizations, in a way they just made the concept that all the all the weapons are obsolete and they actually destroyed them. So we have here two approaches, two philosophical approaches, not only to the main question whether war is possible, 
but also whether old weapons are still a part of the whole system. Iran, uh, when leaders such as Putin resort to war, does that mean that diplomacy, including deterrence, has failed? To a certain extent, yes. But as Klausowicz said, you know, there, there, it's a continuum and not a dichotomy. Um, however, I think in this case, what we are witnessing uh, in historical terms is uh, something very different from what we have seen before <clears throat> in, in many respects, and probably will elaborate further. But um, uh, perhaps the first thing I would note is uh, the overall over global reach of, of this war compared to any other war that we have seen in decades, maybe hundreds of years. Uh, this is unlike the war in Yemen, the war in Syria, or any other war that we have witnessed, again, in many respects. But I think um, probably the most prominent one is the fact that for the first time in recent memory, in decades, we have a leader who is challenging not only his uh, nation's borders, not only his nation's status, if you will, but the entire global order uh, in a very calculated way. I don't belong to those who believe that, you know, we have a, we're dealing with a madman or somebody who lost his senses or something like that. Even though sensible people are making this argument, I don't buy into it. I think there, there is a plan. There is a calculation. There is a strategy. Um, and at least I didn't see it coming. I think many other experts and observers did not see it coming. So that's also something to, to ponder. How did we not understand Putin, even though we studied him and, you know, intelligence organizations and so on? Um, the bottom line here is that there is a challenger to the world order for the first time in, again, many, many years. And to me, the fascinating, uh, this is obviously horrible, but also fascinating, the fascinating thing to look at is the new equilibrium that will be created as a result of this war, uh, as a result of both diplomatic, military, economic, legal, and so on means between not only Russia and the U.S., but the triumvirate of Russia, U.S., and China. And what role will the European Union play in this new um, configuration of, of global power? Danny Ayalon, uh, early in your mm -hmm. diplomatic career, you were uh, posted to the United Nations uh, in uh, Manhattan. And at that time, uh, the early phase of the Clinton administration, there was um, a famous tug of war between the... Um, uh, permanent representative uh, to the UN, um, Madeleine Albright, and General Colin Powell as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, regarding uh, the use of force with uh, Albright, of all people, uh, being the diplomat, uh, was more hawkish and demanded that uh, General Powell, who was an advisor, was uh, not in the chain of command, but nevertheless had a lot of influence, used forces, while he suggested uh, diplomacy first. What can you tell us, uh, based also on your experience in the prime minister's office and then uh, at the Washington embassy, about the interplay between diplomats and generals when such decisions have to be made? And of course, mentioning General Powell, the vagaries of history show that he was the one that had to preside over diplomacy before they uh, second the Gulf War 2003. 
and he was quite humiliated, as you know. Uh, but yes, <clears throat> it is quite amazing. They say that you know those who have been scourged by the experience of war are the uh, the last ones that would resort uh, to that. And uh, and politicians or statesmen are the ones who have a big appetite, much more than generals. And um, and to that I would like to say, uh, Amir, you asked whether the uh, the time or the era of war is over. I don't think so because the fundamentals and the fundamentals are a the human nature, which can also be reflected on countries' uh, nature. And the uh, the lack of resources, limited resources. So as long as you have this competition, as long as you have this ego and ethos, I do not see the end of wars unless maybe in uh, Mr. Zuckerberg's uh, world of the metaverse, only maybe in, the, in only in virtual world there may not be wars. But I'm afraid we are we have not seen the last of it yet. Ruven, what we have been witnessed uh, so far, or most of what we have witnessed, was the civilian population being hit, um, uh, refugees or displaced persons, and uh, the damage to, uh, to cities. We haven't seen a lot, if at all, from the battlefield itself. And it brings to mind uh, what would have happened had World War II been covered by the press only from London during the Blitz, or alternatively, Dresden or Tokyo, when their lies bombed them. And no one uh, would have seen uh, Normandy on D-Day or Iwo Jima or other Or even uh, Warsaw Ghetto. Or the Warsaw Ghetto, as Gershon uh, has been saying. So are, are we skewed in a way, in the way um, we emotionally absorb the Russia-Ukraine war and we should see it if not more objectively, from more dimensions? Mm -hmm. Well, there's no way of seeing this objectively, of course, and both sides are fully utilizing the tools at their disposal now to influence our perception and very powerful images of suffering. Uh, some even are skeptical to the images that they see before their eyes, even though we can't forget that there are people on the ground and reporters and, and even in Israel, family and friends, that we know what's going on. Yet it's still very strange that in 2022, with all these capabilities, with cell phones in hand and TikTok, still the battlefield isn't that clear to us. Um, the human dimension is portrayed quite realistically because people you know, are, are both reporters and the people themselves. So we see what's going on. The, battlef the battlefield, not too much, uh, which is very strange. Uh, and I think maybe this side of the table here, the military professionals will look at the military, at the military aspects of this um, in, in wonderment, in puzzlement, because the Russian military is performing in a way that maybe I, I at least would not expect. I, expect. I expected something totally different from them. So I myself, I'm not sure if this is because the way it's portrayed in the media, that there isn't coverage, that it's being suppressed, or that the Russians themselves miscalculated and uh, overstepped and uh, maybe underestimated the Ukrainians, which is why they just have these long convoys of burnt vehicles over the road. So bottom line for me, uh, it's one thing to understand the complexities and the, the interests that lead to it, but even complexity to understand rea reality on the ground as we speak. Gershon, um, the other major event being uh, played out along, uh, even though secondary to, the uh, Ukraine uh, crisis, is the JCPOA uh, being revived 
the Iran nuclear deal. And part of um, the reason the Iranians agreed to the deal in the first place, in the interim deal in 2013, and then the deal itself two years later, was the uh, so-called credible military threat, along with the sanctions. But if war is out of bounds, can there be a credible military threat? Can a nation go to war or, or brandish the, the weapon uh, if uh, it is not legitimate anymore? We can just uh, try to understand the, the decision-making of uh, Putin. And uh, I'm just jumping to what Iran said before regarding rationality. Either he is irrational or maybe there is another measurement of rationality. It means if Rational, R-U-S-S or R-A-T? <laughs> May not be the same, rational yeah, it, and rational. No, yeah, <laughs> you are great. <laughs> Typical Amir. <laughs> and he is really thinking in a way that fitting to his uh, practical reasoning, but thinking differently. Mm-hmm. And we cannot really predict the way he is thinking. He is thinking Asiatic manners, in Asiatic values, but still he is aware about the sensitivities, of course, of his people, and he's really threatened by that. He is aware about that uh, challenge. I don't know how we will overcome it in the next year. I will not really, I wouldn't want to be in Putin's situation, really. On the other side, uh, the whole form of thinking, even of President Biden, that was so proud to say, I was well informed, the CIA told me exactly and they predicted it. Mm -hmm. The main uh, test for a leader is not whether just you got the information, but mainly what you did with it. And maybe because he was not really uh, in the responsibility to ask himself whether I can really prevent it, maybe because what you ask, the legitimation of war was not legitimate, but he made it possible because of his way of not making something to prevent it at the beginning. And everyone is talking about uh, Putin, but there is also Zelensky here, Volodymyr Zelensky. Perhaps he was not keen enough to understand how determined Putin was, because as Gershon said, um, most of the information was out, was deliberately put out Mm -hmm. by the Americans and the British and the others in order to show Putin that there will be no surprise here but it was to no avail. And it is a war of wills, a war of nerves, and perhaps um, President Zelensky misjudged his opponent. First of all, I I do want to respond to what Gershon said. And I'm trying to think, what could have Biden and the West done differently that would have prevented the war? And I don't see any such um, real course of action. Short of you know, declaring a situation of war vis-a-vis Russia that nobody wanted to, and justifiably, and I think also in retrospect, they don't have regrets in, in, that, in that regard. Um, could, ha- could they maybe have um, organized the sanctions beforehand? Probably not. 
you, you cannot sanction an aggressor before he has actually committed the aggression. But maybe to so communicate it with him in a way, I don't know. But they know. have. I'm sure they have. Of course they have. So even in retrospect, it hard, it's hard for me to see what could have been done differently. And I have to say that I am impressed with the reaction and the policy and everything that went into it. Because obviously there were months and weeks of intense preparations that paid off. And I think what we're seeing now with the amount and scope and depth of sanctions is unprecedented in history, uh, is akin to non-conventional weapon in the economic and legal sphere and, and humanitarian and, and political. Uh, perhaps you alluded to that when you said you don't want to be in Putin's shoes. Of course. So as I, I just saw yesterday uh, in, in a tweet, in a kind of authoritative tweet, that uh, I think it was by March 15, Russia will not be able to pay its debts. And then it has 30 days before it goes insolvent in, for all practical purposes. So April 16 is going to be the month, the day in which Russia, Russia's economy collapses officially. This is and tax that's, day in the United States. That, <laughs> <but> <laughs> that's virtually around the corner. So I think, you know, this is going to be, again, very, very interesting to watch. About Zelensky, just a word. Um, he may have miscalculated, but again, I'm trying to figure out what could he have done differently. Obviously, he had the option of surrendering. He, he opted not to surrender. Again, I think justifiably, even though, you know, this is somebody I wouldn't like to be in the shoes of. Uh, he's in, I think, in a, in a much more difficult position than Putin, unfortunately. Um, but again, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what could he have done differently, and I and uh, and I'm not sure what he could have done. Um, and you know, the outcome of all of this, I, I don't want to speculate because obviously we can't. But the outcome of this might be that he remains the in control of Ukraine, that Ukraine remains an independent state maybe with less of a territory than what it had uh, prior to the conflict. But this will be an amazing achievement. So what would we say if this is the outcome? Would we say that he miscalculated or that he, or that he calculated perfectly? Danny, you are probably uh, personally familiar with Bill Burns, yes. who was uh, in charge of the uh, Near East Affairs Bureau um, and then ambassador to Moscow when, when you were uh, the ambassador to, uh, to Washington. Now he's the director of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, but uh, during the Trump administration, when he was uh, in between uh, senior positions in, in uh, various administrations, not only Democratic, he was uh, close to the first uh, Bush administration uh, too, he said that the problem is probably lack of empathy, not sympathy towards Putin, because when he was in two jobs in Moscow, first minister, counselor, and then ambassador, he warned against the expansion of NATO beyond Poland into Ukraine and Georgia, that this would um, make P Putin's position much more adversary towards both the Ukraine and, and the United States. So how can you, as a professional foreign service officer, or an advisor to policymakers, how can you formulate your recommendations so that the masters, the political masters, will understand the difference between sympathy and empathy? Well, that's a very good question. Well, uh, Bill Burns is someone who knows Putin and Russia probably 
better than anyone else in the West. And, uh, you know, just before, during this uh, run-up to this crisis, you know, he went over to Moscow and he met with him and he met with his generals and everyone else. And still he couldn't figure out what uh, was in his mind. Famous words of Churchill, you know, what is Russia? A riddle inside a mystery shrouded by a... Enigma. Enigma. So this is it. But I think from my talks with, uh, with, with Burns when he was out of office was that the first thing, you know, you said, you asked me about the difference between empathy and, and sympathy. He put the emphasis on respect. He says, what Putin and Russia need is respect. So when Obama called them a second-rate uh, country, um, I think that was just uh, Putin's blood was, was boiling. And maybe part of this ramification we see even now. And, uh, and the Russians are, um, are ruthless when it comes to their own uh, interests. And this is also the two things that I think in the West, under, I don't say that they did not understand. Everybody understands that they need respect and that they are ruthless and they think like a big uh, superpower. But I think it was underestimated, underestimated in the sense that maybe he will stop short of really maybe just flexing his muscles and hoping that the respect will come. Well, it didn't come, and uh, as, as you mentioned, the extension, the, the expansion of, of NATO in, uh, in hindsight uh, maybe was a mistake. Maybe it was a mistake because really, who was threatening the alliance, the Northern Alliance, the Northern Atlantic Alliance after the, 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 you know, the breakup of the... Of the uh, well, it's the other way around. The, um, the alliance was uh, underemployed and perhaps bored looked uh, for uh, some action uh, either out of area in Afghanistan or elsewhere or to expand because that's how organizations uh, keep growing. Uh, otherwise... Uh, You're not going, uh, going backward. Yes. But I think somebody wrote in the New York Times, I read it yesterday, something which I think is, is true. We tend to emphasize, to overemphasize, the American position when it comes to NATO's enlargement and not the position of those that actually wanted to join. So countries like Poland, like Hungary and others, they pleaded mm -hmm. with the Americans and NATO to join. Should they have refused? I'm not sure. Well, I, I remember meeting Pol Poles. Even Finland now thinking it too. Yeah, I remember meeting accepted. the head of uh, the Polish policy planning, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I was amazed how he spoke about Russia. For him, it was like an imminent threat. The way we spoke about Iran, he spoke about Russia. And I was like, I, I spoke to my people and I said, these guys are crazy. What are they talking about? Well, they were right. Russia is a threat, was a threat, and they were probably justified to join NATO. So but, but who, are, the, who are we complaining about? No, but the, the answer that Bill Burns uh, would yeah. give mm -hmm. is that there is a difference between the Partnership for Peace mm -hmm. as a gradual association with NATO and full membership, which gives you Chapter 5 protection. That's exactly what the Poles wanted. That's exactly what <laughs> Zelensky wants. And this is, <laughs> this is perhaps one reason why Putin preempted before he is uh, in NATO. Burns also said you never should let the uh, tail of the dog wag the body. And this is mm. what happened, you know, Poland yeah. and all those countries, and mm. rightly so, but they were afraid. Please take it back, Danny, because they say it about Israel too. So, <laughs> so let's let's not get this is Mearsheimer. Let's, yeah, let's not get into uh, dogs and tails. We are the heart, not the, not uh, the tail. Ruben, um, the uh, issue of of respect and dignity, um, 
also had to do with the way Israel saw Egypt, for instance, before the Yom Kippur War. And um, perhaps it does have a, a place in, in uh, international uh, affairs. But how do you factor it in? Uh, is it only a matter of tactics, courtesy, protocol? I think it's a matter of uh, the, the nature of human beings. We're talking about warfare as a fundamental issue. This is how people have always settled disputes and always will in the future. They'll talk, they'll talk, they'll talk, and then they'll fight, right? It will always happen. Uh, and people yearn for respect on a personal level, on a national level. And sometimes I think we Israelis think that our core values, these are very powerful and I like the teachings of Gershon on this. I mean, we have powerful narratives we will fight to the death for, right? But others, no, they just have interests. And come on, relax. We'll send you our prime minister. He'll teach you how to, how to settle things. You know, we, we know the answer. So it's not, that's not the case. Everyone has red lines and narratives. When you listen to Vladimir Putin speak, and it's, it's, it's strange because when it breaks out, we're surprised. But then when we look back, it's like it was all there, right? So it's, you don't even need hindsight. It's like it's all there. And when he speaks very clearly, he can sit for 45 minutes, look into the camera and say, these are my uh, goals, these are my vows, this is what the United States is doing to me, one, two, three, these are the things that are important to me. And then you guys, the West, or the United States, are violating them one by one. You're spitting in my face. And so then one, one thing yes. here about the asymmetry that uh, Putin sees the world, he says, how do I have, how is it that I have American troops in my neighborhood and I cannot have Russian troops, not in Nicaragua, not in Venezuela, of because course. this is a, a Bezos... Well, uh, President a, a Kennedy had, had an answer that life is unfair. That's Monroe, <laughs> uh, Mon Monroe, Monroe doctrine, doctrine from the 19th century. But just speaking about respect, if we can just look upon Obama's speech in Cairo, he came to respect them and they just perceived as a, an example of not at all respect. Talking about them. the Arabs now. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but this is that's. He why told I'm... them something like that. You know, you in the medieval time needed the scientific world. Now look where you are. Right. We are opening our universities to you. We will bring you to raise up again. This is to humiliate someone. The, the only just to conclude this, I want to say that we can't take any one of these values or narratives and take them till the end and think that that leads to the answer. Absolutely not. Respect is not everything. But respect has to be factored in, really, as a calculation, including we have to take the lessons from this war to the next war or future war between the United States and China. Does respect have to be factored in? Yes. Does this mean that you subscribe to everything that they do, to their regime, to their way of life? No. You also have to be diplomatic. But this is a very difficult balance. Gershon, um, one note. There, up to now, it has been a unilateral war. We haven't seen the Ukrainians attacking targets in Russia. Of course. For, for one reason or another. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe uh, they are not able to. But the question um, uh, I would like to pose to you is what is the value of security guarantees and, in a broader context, of international organizations such as the United Nations, uh, the European Union, NATO, um, in a world where there is no uh, independent country. Everyone needs either financial aid, uh, security assistance, uh, weapons from abroad, um, political support uh, in the Security Council. 
Of course, uh, we have a lot of experience with United Nations troops, for example, in Lebanon. And they are contributing to the situation. And yet, if someone expecting them to prevent war, it is just not at all a, a real expectation. What is their contribution? Is a tripwire? No, they are there. They can give a report. Uh, their presence making a difference by their very presence there. And uh, we are really uh, finding routes to transfer messages. Even the, the UN forces in the Golan Heights, in a way they almost did nothing. But along all the years, it was a way to communicate. And just the channel of, of communication is very, very important. Sometimes it is the last uh, step before war. But it was also some cause for tension as long as this end of mandate had to be extended yes. every six months. We had uh, two, uh, at least twice a year, we had crisis with the Hafez Assad threatening not to extend. So uh, maybe the cost outweighed the This is part the of the game. It is part of the game, but it is an intervention of other uh, um, military troops uh, reporting and states are involved and it is making uh, interest for others, even though they are not just in the business. Iran, had you been back uh, with the national security staff now? And of course, Israel has a coalition government. The prime minister is only first among equals, sometimes even less than that. He has to balance his views with the other parties, with the foreign minister, the uh, minister of defense and others. What uh, would your draft look like um, regarding the threats and opportunities rising for Israel from this uh, war? We don't have enough time. <laughs> um, By bullets. Succinctly, I would say the following. Number one, um, we need to absolutely, affirmatively, inequivocally align with the U.S. and the European Union in the present and looking towards the future, which obviously is not what the government is doing. This would have been my first recommendation and the first overall major strategic lesson from everything that we have seen so far. Because the world has now been re-split into essentially two blocks, roughly speaking. Obviously, it's not a complete repetition of the Cold War, but it's similar. Um, China's role is still kind of in question is here. Is China benefiting from the tug of war I between the two? I think by and large, yes. Uh, and I think this has a lot to do with Putin's actual calculation to the extent that I can try and understand it. I think he was, for him, it's a preemptive war before China uh, shapes the world order without him in historical terms. So he wanted, in a sense, to up his value in the system to demonstrate to the Chinese that, you know, they need him. Uh, and I think he so far did that but with a much more considerable price than probably both of those actors imagined. And, and this is still ongoing, so we'll see. But in t back to Israel, number one lesson is to align with the US and the West as quickly and as deeply as possible, contrary to what the government is doing. Number two, uh, revisit the relation between Israel's national security and international security and international order, something that we have been very weak 
in terms of thinking about or doing anything about in, uh, since the inception of the country. Um, and I think the major lesson for us and for all countries from this uh, conflict is going to be, uh, you know, we cannot do it alone. Uh, standing alone is too risky. Yes, of course, we need to have our own capabilities and all that. But it must be within a much tighter and more robust framework of both regional and international alliances that should cut across military, economic, cultural, uh, moral, and so on uh, domains. Which, again, something that I, I remember discussions back in the 90s, in the heydays of the peace process, where everybody thought, you know, this is, we're marching very quickly towards the end of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We were drafting memos about Israel joining NATO and Israel joining the EU and, and, and Israel yeah, joining offered, the eh? regional alliance and so Together on. Together we Israel. got uh, offers like that in Germany, in Berlin. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And I think it, all of them should be revisited under the new circumstances with a positive eye, not a negative eye, like so many in Israel are quick to, to, to conclude. Um, so I guess these would be my, my main points. And also we need some quick adjustments in terms of our Uh, uh, domestic foreign policies on, on refugees, on sanctions. These are issues on which we are sadly behind uh, and we're already paying a price and we'll pay more and more prices. So we need to very quickly up our game and be in, in, at least in line with the U.S. and the West in terms of applying sanctions, even if, if it runs against some of our more minor interests, for example, in the, uh, on the issue of uh, Russian oligarchs, Russian monies and all of that. Uh, so there's no time to lose, and uh, you know I would sign it urgently <laughs> for immediate application. And then it would go into the file <laughs> or the wastebasket. <laughs> Reuven, you uh, define your work uh, as being in the cross-cultural dimension. But is there also a cross-generational issue here, with Putin being almost 70 years old, coming this October? And, of course, steeped in the history of World War II in Russia, which was devastating in the entire Soviet Union at that time, including the Ukraine, but looking from a Russian perspective. And Zelensky representing the younger generation, um, none of whose members have seen war. And perhaps it is a clash of generations, not only of national narratives. Uh, I could easily explain why yes and why no. Um, and um, I think we can always see this, but you know, in young Israel, we still carry on our backs thousands of years of history. You can have a young leader, but still you understand the depth of history and our culture and, our, and the, the, the national narratives. And I think they play out here um, in what we see. Uh, and I think also you cannot fight the current war without having the understanding of history. By the way, most of us today looking at the news, of course, naturally aligning, I hope, with the suffering of Ukraine, the, the atrocities or the, some of the things that the, the Russian military is doing under the leadership of, of Putin. Uh, but when we look at this now, we, we can't always judge it in that framework. We can't ju- judge it in that f- frame of mind. So I, look, I always preached that if we had women leaders, we won't have wars. <laughs> so, so certainly the, a human factor comes into it, but it's not only just a matter of a young generation. Even if we'd have a 30-year-old young uh, leader at the, head of, at the helm in Russia, he would have to have, or she would have to have, the historic perspective, the understand, 
business of how things unfolded. What happened in 2014 in Ukraine? Alexander the Great was barely 30 yes, years old. And remember be. when Putin now mm-hmm. he throws out these things like denazification of Ukraine. What is yeah. that? No, S- it, simple propaganda? Mm-hmm. No, he has some interesting roots that he latches on and He and didn't uses understand them. the young generation in Ukraine. And if I'm myself looking upon the young generation, even in uh, Israelis, settlers in Judea and Samaria, they are far away from me and they are absolutely with deep empathy with a free world, with the values of the free world. And Putin was really not only underestimating that, he failed absolutely in understanding the power of this young generation. But any, any place that you have a leader too long in office, that's catastrophe. Anywhere, in democracies, in places like Russia and China, too, too long in office, bad. Danny, uh, when you look at the um, arch or arc of history, does it seem as if the Americans are gradually out and the Russians and the Chinese are in? I'm not sure. <clears throat> you know, uh, objectively, the American capabilities in all spheres, technologically, strategically, and you name it, economically for sure, um, is, is bigger than Russia. And I would uh, dare say Russia and China together. But we know that uh, might or power or perception of power is not just capabilities, but it's also the will and the determination to use it. The United States has lost the will, certainly in this uh, decade, after wars in uh, Iraq twice, in Afghanistan, and uh, you can go even back to, uh, Vietnam. to Vietnam. And in between, when you alluded to the, the differences between Albright and Powell in Yugoslavia and all, and all that. But uh, again, it's, it's Churchill, you know, all these cliches that uh, the United States is doing the right thing after actually making all the mistakes in between. It's much easier to start a war in a dictatorship. It's one man's decision, no checks and balances, no biting press and all that. In a democracy, you cannot start a war, but I think in the long run, it is easier to, to end a war and to finish a war because it takes a time to mobilize a society. And the more inequities, the more war crimes, the Americans will see, let's say, if, God forbid, in, uh, in Europe, they will uh, come together and they will throw their weight around. So if I have to bet, this is not the end of American hegemony. Uh, we are not even in the midst of it. And a word about um, intra-European uh, politics. Uh, within the EU, Germany and France have been co-leaders for a long time, especially since Brexit. Is there going to be a change in that following the Russia-Ukraine war once it ends? I think there's going to be a major consolidation within the EU. I don't think there's going to be a change in the leadership, but everything else changes. And it's really amazing to watch the way that Germany overnight turned decades of security and and foreign policy, uh, upped its uh, military budget by, uh, I think, uh, 100 billion euros. Um, And it's just amazing to watch. And not even under Merkel. Yeah. And Denmark also uh, kind of immediately relieving any kind of, of barriers to security cooperation. Uh, Sweden, Finland wanting to join NATO. So everything in the EU now is in flux. And I think they're going to, paradoxically, they're going to be one of the major benefactors from this conflict. They're going to be much stronger, much more cohesive. 
um, acting uh, in a much more uh, impactful way on, on the global stage. And this is going to be one of the major unintended consequences of, uh, of Putin's... That's move. very interesting mm-hmm. regarding anti-militaristic indoctrination in mm-hmm. Western cultural uh, young generations. Yes. And maybe that will also uh, take a turn. I think it will. In the 30 seconds or so, we still have, um, as a professional military man, still in the reserves. Uh, you are never really retired uh, in, in Israel, especially not you, Gershon. In the um, Israeli military, what is going to be the lesson, as far as we uh, know right now, regarding the balance between standoff weaponry, mostly Air Force, and the ground forces um, whom we are seeing. It is Inva- a, invaded, yes. but uh, have progressed very slowly. It is a huge debate. And uh, of course, uh, the ground forces uh, commander uh, got a kind of confirmation that uh, <laughs> he needs uh, more support for his programs. Actually, we got another uh, impressive lesson from the struggle carried by the civilians. Uh, Because uh, part of uh, uh, questions regarding the capabilities of even reservist soldiers was the fact that they are not really in daily life uh, dedicated to the military service. So we we really got a a great uh, lesson from the Ukraine people and actually, we need it. General Gershon Akoem, Colonel Ruben Ren Shalom, Eran Etzion, Daniel thank you very much. And we will be back next month for another edition. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.